I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. I think any conversation about the Eucharist sometimes requires definitions when it comes to terminology, but not necessarily a definition of, say, transubstantiation or even Eucharist, but really an understanding deep within our hearts, really sinking into our bones that animates everything we do, this understanding of the Eucharist as the means of renewal within our life. That we live and move and have our being because of Jesus Christ present to us in the Eucharist, in this specific place, at this time, in this moment, in that tabernacle consumed within our bodies. And that leads to renewal, that leads to a different perspective. And whether we walk into Mass fully understanding that, sit in front of the Blessed Sacrament in a moment of adoration, comprehending that, or we are occasionally confused by it, flummoxed by it, overwhelmed by it. I think the ultimate point is that we recognize there's so much happening, so much happening within, so much happening externally, so much happening within the community, that the Eucharist cannot just be explained away theologically, experienced momentarily, renewing us in a singular instant, but is in fact this ongoing experience of a mystery far beyond our comprehension that defines everything about our lives and that there are layers to that renewal, but that at the heart of it is this understanding that the Eucharist changes our lives, not just making us into these better theologians who can explain concepts, but into people who are vastly different in this world because of the encounter with Jesus Christ, that our very identity is different because of the way we have received Jesus Christ. There are really only a handful of people that I've met over the course of my career in speaking and in podcasting now and and, in education that can speak to the heart of this well. It's not to say that there aren't a lot of people out there trying and many times making valiant efforts at it, but every single time I've sat down with Dr. Tim O'Malley, who has become a dear friend over the years, I've been struck by two things. He's really good at explaining stuff. And I like being around him. I like talking to him. I like hearing his stories. I like hearing the way he explains these concepts. And I know he believes it. So I guess those are three things. He's likable. He's good at what he does. And I know that he believes it, which is exactly what you want in a professor of theology, exactly what you want in someone who's helping to animate the Eucharistic revival, exactly what you want in someone who's writing a book encouraging people to become Eucharistically focused and centered and minded. Encouraging and inviting people to pay attention to how Jesus stirs within our hearts, that this allows us to recreate spaces of love far beyond the address of the church that we were in when we received the Eucharist. As we've continued our journey of of trying to understand what the Eucharist is and why the Eucharist is and how the Eucharist changes us. I wanted to sit down with Dr. Tim O'Malley so that you could experience this incredible skill he has at explaining and inviting and challenging, but also because, to be quite frank, Ave Explorers wouldn't really exist without Tim O'Malley's encouragements. 
And I figured, you know, it's worth telling the story 20 seasons in. I was sitting in the lobby of the Baltimore Marriott in downtown Baltimore, across the street from the Orioles Stadium. And Tim and I had grabbed a drink. This was long before my alcohol allergy. This was, I believe, in the fall, no, excuse me, the spring of 2018 or 2019. Not exactly sure when. I think 2018. But either way, we sat down and we were chatting and I was sharing with him how much I'd been traveling and all the different places that I'd been going and what I had coming up on the docket and how it was just really exhausting me and kind of taking it out of me and I wasn't particularly enjoying it anymore, but this was the job and this was the gig and this is what I'd agreed to do. And I'd already said yes to all these places. And he looked at me and as only a friend can, he said, you have to stop this. You have to find something else because this is going to kill you. It's going to destroy your marriage. It's going to wreck your family. It's not going to provide fruit within your life. You have to stop this. And he didn't mean stop ministry. He didn't mean stop traveling altogether. He meant you have to find some other way to contribute in the way that you feel called to contribute because you cannot be everywhere all at once. And in fact, trying to do so and saying yes constantly isn't going to be good for your own spiritual well-being. And it was exactly what I needed to hear from a friend in that moment. And as a result of that conversation, When I finally got to sit down with the folks at Ave and we began to dream about what Ave Explorers could be, Tim's ears or Tim's words just kept ringing through my ears. And now here we are, 20 seasons in, hundreds of thousands of downloads, dozens and dozens of guests, incredible conversations over the course of our 120 plus episodes brought to you to hopefully encourage you to seek renewal, to seek a deeper understanding of faith, to be encouraged in your journey, especially with regards to encountering the Eucharist and be utterly transformed by what can happen when we do encounter Jesus Christ in the Eucharist and are changed forever. This is all part of our Ave Explorer series on the Eucharist. You can find everything we've created, all 20 seasons and this current one, over at AveMariaPress.com. Everything's completely free. Sign up for the emails, get it straight to your inbox, listen to these episodes, share them with your friends, We are in the midst of our Eucharistic revival, and this is a part of this project. And today, Dr. Tim O'Malley is going to encourage us to understand the Eucharist leads to renewal, renewal of our identity, renewal of our communities, renewal of our family, renewal of everything, because it challenges us to be people who create spaces of love in a whole new way. Dr. Timothy O'Malley, it's great to see you. Welcome back to Ave Explorers. Oh, thanks for having me. It's good to see you and to be with you and this period of time. <laughs> yes, it's always, I'm always interested, like, how is Tim going to kick off the conversation? Because you are so good at just jumping right in. Chit chat is not something that we do very often, although I am curious, how's your family? How are things? But tell us a little bit about who you are and where you are and what you do. Sure. I work at the University of Notre Dame. I am a theologian, a liturgical sacramental theologian who works partially in administration here at Notre Dame. So I direct our educational outreach, which is our digital education for parishes and dioceses around the United States doing continuing education. I'm also the academic director of the Center for Liturgy here at Notre Dame. And I teach a lot of undergraduates. So I teach undergraduates scripture. I teach them liturgy and sacraments. I teach them marriage and family things. And I travel around 
also working with dioceses doing this. So I I feel like for the last we're we're speaking at the end of March 2023, and I've spent like 12 days of March not in my own bed. So mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to not getting on a not traveling at all anywhere until April, uh, end of April. So I do a lot of travel for that and to sort of really bring Notre Dame to the church. That's our goal, wherever the church is. Was that always, I think I've asked you this question before, so I'm anxious to see if the answer is the same. Was that always like the hope? You go off to get that PhD, write the dissertation. During, I'm watching my sister write a dissertation right now and praying for her every day because it's driving her a little crazy. But, but like, was this your joy? Was this the expectation that this is what you would do? No, I mean, I thought I was going to tenure track position somewhere, be writing books, not traveling anywhere <laughs> and teaching, you know, classes. And I think the work that I'm doing is is really interesting. I think it's on the, you know, I think colleges, universities, especially Catholic colleges and universities are in the middle of a sort of transition. What's the nature of education? What's Catholic higher education? How are we supporting theological education in the church today? So I think I envision traditional theological education. My career has anything been, has been almost nothing but traditional theological education. And so in that sense, no, I had no idea that this was going to happen with my life. Why do you think it did then? Like, what did you say yes to that led to all of this? Well, it was a job. I mean, this is going <laughs> to sound not very uh, inspirational, but, you know, I was at the end of my doctoral program. I needed one more year to work on the dissertation. Funding was drying up. Sort of, I jumped into this and it grew along the ways. And I think I discovered in the middle of the job that I actually like doing these things and mm. that it allowed me to take on a particular kind of, well, I wrote my doctorate on Augustine, uh, particularly Augustine on mystagogical preaching. And one of the things that I found really fascinating just simply about the life of Augustine is the manner by which as a bishop, right, he was the sort of author of major tomes on the Trinity on the relationship between religion and culture. And yet he also preached and dealt with administrative concerns within his local diocese. He was basically the the judge for all sorts of other problems. He wrote letters to people and he learned to speak anything from like a really high style to a really low style. Mm. and, and, And by low, I don't mean offensive, but he could teach Latin that people could understand, Latin that made you look sophisticated. And so I think in some ways I discovered my own sort of Augustinian position here. I still get to write things that no one reads. And then I write things that people read. (laughs) I've read them. Well, there are, there are many, there are things that I'm sure you've not read. (laughs) Lots uh, of, lots of hidden academic-y kind of stuff. Journal articles that no one reads. So. But you have to have, you have to have it on the CV. (laughs) Correct. Yes. You know, you're, you're talking about something and I'm sure somebody has said this to you before, but let me be another person to also say, I think you're at the heart of renewal happening within our church. Like some of the places that you're going oh. and some of the things that you're doing and what you're seeing, whether it's, you know, sitting on a board for universities or writing these journal articles that you say no one's reading or, you know, teaching 20-year-olds who are coming into a classroom about, I know one of your courses is you, you make them go on dates, right? Like you've got this wide range. And I think at the heart of it is this project of renewal in a moment of revival. Talk to me about when you sit down to write, whether it's the book that you think people will read 
or the article that you know no one's going to read or the, the crafting of the talk that a parish might hear or going into the classroom with the students. What, at the end of the day, are you hopeful people will walk away with? Topic, regardless of what it might be, at the end of the day, what's the, the end goal for you? Yeah, it's a good question. I think my goal is always to get people to slow down and look anew at something that they think that they previously understood. I suspect that one of the real sort of problems in Roman Catholicism today is simplicity, simplicity of answers to every problem, right? If only we do X, Y, or Z, then X, Y, or Z will happen with perfection. Um, And I think the gospel's hard. I think the gospels are difficult, right? They challenge us, they force us to slow down and ponder and wonder and answer some deeper questions rather than to remain simply at a sort of surface level, but to really sort of probe into the depths of, I think, some of these things. It just requires to slow down, right? So to look anew, we, we have this program for undergraduates here at Notre Dame we call Second Look. We want undergraduates to take a second look at their religious tradition to understand really what's going on. I think that's kind of what I want to do is take a second look. If you're a lifelong Catholic, you know, if we're talking about the Eucharist or marriage or family life or the vocation of a Catholic school. I want you to look anew at it and see it in another kind of way. I think that's the gift of the academy uh, at its best. At its worst, it's mm. kind of just bureaucracy and academic writing for its own sake. At its best, it's an invitation to look at things anew, to, to, to sort of renew an imagination, the images by which we look at the world. So I think that's what I'm trying to do every time, although I've never said it aloud. So <laughs> thank you for the question. Well, and... What's the result of that looking anew? It's, I mean, re- how many times can we say renewal and anew? It's, it's somebody is, is making a conscious change. If I'm looking at something with a, a new perspective, well, then I'm going to live differently or I'm going to act differently or pray differently or just, you know, parent my children, hopefully a little bit better. How do you think people, you, you use that word simplicity. How have we oversimplified some things in the church that have maybe led to fractions, divisions, confusion, and then what can be the fix for that? And specifically, I'm probably trying to poke the bear on like liturgy and liturgical wars and liturgical battles. You said, oh, if we only did this, then everybody would come back. Or if we only said this, then no one would have left in the first place. Why have we simplified? I guess that's the simplified question. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of a historian partially. So I apologize for like a historical reference, but I think some of what our problem is, is that First of all, we are apocalyptic with Mm -hmm. where we think our current state is, and we are overly apocalyptic. We seem to imagine that in 1940s, 1950s Catholicism, everything was hunky-dory and that life was just kind of flourishing. And if we can return to that state, then the whole sort of world would be renewed. One, you can't do that. you You just can't. You can't return to an event that's in the past. Two, everything has always been terrible and good, both, but it's always been terrible and good. (laughs) And if you look at the history of Catholicism, it's simply the case that, you know, if you look at clerical power and abuse, right, what you find today has always been the case, right? These have been sort of the case. And so ecclesial renewal, the renewal of the church is always a thing that we're called to, but that renewal has to respond to the times that we're in, in this day with this sort of work that's ahead of us. And, you know, I, I mean, I think 
This is what, how religious orders came into existence, right? I mean, Franciscans arise as a renewal movement, particular to their time. Dominicans are the same. Jesuits are the same. You know, we, we now have new religious energy arising out of a variety of sort of lay-led movements because of the sort of return to the lay apostolate mm-hmm. and the really emphasis in the lay apostolate in the, the wake of, of Vatican II. You know, I think to me, and I, you know, I'm happy to sort of pause for a moment after I say this and then see if this starts to move in the liturgical direction. I think part of the renewal at stake today is that there is a kind, that the liturgical renewal, and perhaps at certain times, it may have had texts that weren't done well enough. The rubrics might not have been great. I might not like this or that had an emphasis on the fact that participation is, as St. John Paul II noted, the the heart of the lay apostolate and what the lay apostolate is to do, to make of their lives a living sacrifice back to the Father, to consecrate the whole world back to God. That's a vocation that we have. And the liturgical rites of the church are intended to do that. They're not aesthetic events. They're not events just celebrating our own identity, happy the people that God has chosen, or happy the God who chose us as his people, <laughs> as I think it's often sort of implied, right? No, I mean, that's the, the 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 renewal is that God loved me before I loved God. And God now invites me to make of my life that sacrifice of love in return. And so I think that's one way beyond some of this. It, it's a return to, I think, the source of renewal which is this lay baptized vocation to consecrate the world. And that's not a passive thing. Like participation can't just be a watching. Yes, that is correct. Yeah, it's not passive and it's not active as we understand it. It doesn't mean frenetic movement all the time, even at mass. It, it is active insofar as it's me. It's my whole self that's mm-hmm. being offered in this in any sort of moment. So yeah, I think that's the task. And You know, I think we're at a time in the church where that can happen in a lot of different ways. There are certainly those I know who attend the traditional liturgy often understand their their lives in the very way that I just described it. They're they're not seeking to sort of kill puppies after mass and like troglodytes or something like that. And at the same time, I see it in charismatic Catholic communities where I'm about as uncomfortable as can be physically described. I mean, that's not... (laughs) <laughs> that is the opposite of my Irish Catholic being, but I see it. And in fact, I'm very moved by it. And so I think that there's a lot of ways that this is unfolded. And that's the kind of renewal that we're called to. It's a renewal that God is act- enacting because it's through God's activity first. That's mm-hmm. number one thing. And certainly we can make that more clear in our liturgical celebrations. It's God's work first, not ours. But I think that it is this baptismal lay Eucharistic vocation to consecrate the world that to me is the source of all renewal in the church right now. Mm -hmm. Sounds like there are layers to the renewal and there are uh, stages might not be the right word, but I don't know what the right word would be that there's, there's movements kind of within this desire for this looking anew for this renewed understanding. You said to become Eucharistic within the world and I love that phrase. I also know that there might be people listening to this thinking, I don't know what that means. Because if you look at the data, a lot of American Catholics don't even really believe in the real presence or fully understand it, certainly couldn't articulate it. They might sing transubstantiation in a Matt Meyer song, but not be able to articulate and explain the meaning behind it. 
So you tell me what that means. If, if I'm going to renew, if the world is going to be renewed through this renewed faith and this looking anew, what does that actually look like? And what does it really mean? Let's look at the title of your book, right? What does it mean to become Eucharistic people? Yeah, so I think one of the, the things that we should probably remember, again, this is a historical point, is that functionally for the total history of the Roman Catholic Church, most human beings have not been able to explain in any way, shape, or form the doctrine of transubstantiation, um, <laughs> right? That includes the saints, right? It, it, there's a particular sort of dimension of it. What is required is sort of devotion, love of Christ who gives himself in the Eucharistic presence. Transubstantiation, I think, is amazing. Uh, and I wrote another book on that. It has a chapter on transubstantiation. But I, I think one of the things we need to to be aware of is that, right, I mean, if, if, if the project of renewal is to get people to understand the doctrine of transubstantiation, I could do it in about 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. It's really not the most complicated thing, but if you have a decent teacher, it can work. On the other hand, I mean, I think what we have to understand is that, uh, you know, I'll turn to Augustine here more than sort of language of real presence or transubstantiation. It's a very famous sermon that I think is sometimes quoted out of context. Sermon 272, in which he's giving a sermon after Pentecost, in which people have just been initiated into the church. And he has this famous line that, right, you are to become what you receive to receive what you are, right? That on the altar is the body of Christ. It looks like bread and wine, but it's the body of Christ. And now you have to become that. And I think one of the projects we have to recognize in the Roman Catholic Church is that, or in the Catholic Church, whether we're Roman or Byzantine or whatever, is that when we go to Mass, when we receive the love of Christ poured out upon the cross, the, the very gift of himself, body and blood, soul and divinity given upon the altar, when we commune with that living God, that is a task as much as it's an event, right? It's a task of becoming that's required. I have to become what I have received, the self-giving love of God poured out for the life of the world, and to bring into communion, therefore, to create spaces of love in a loveless world. And that's the role of the parish. Parishes are not bureaucratic entities that create mission statements and strategic plans. We're not sacrament factories, right? Consumer sort of products, you know, consumer sacrament factories, we are the manifestation of divine love in the world. We are the space where God dwells among us still in every corner of every town that has one of these little parishes. But that is not like an, a moment where we should be like, oh, look at us. We're kind of amazing. Mm. That's a task. It's a responsibility to become this and to become it together, right? In a communion of those who have been called and convoked to do this. And so I think this is, you know, I think that's what I mean by becoming Eucharistic people, to become Eucharistic in the world. It's not simply understanding what the Eucharist is. Mm -hmm. It's who is given and who Jesus, who he asks us to become. And so I think that's the task. And it's what a Eucharistic revival to me really is, mm -hmm. uh, a Eucharistic renewal. I mean, I have to admit, while I'm involved, I don't really love the term revival. <laughs> I would call it something different, but I'm not in charge. So I think it's a Eucharistic renewal of the church's very identity. It's, mm. it's a renewal that we're called to do. It's a renewal 
a, a revival, of course, is part of it. You know, it's charismatic. It falls in love. You can't control it. I'm all for that, too. <laughs> but it is a renewal. And that means it has to be a transformation of a culture, making a culture different, making the culture of your parish different, making the culture of the world different. That was a lot, probably more than I normally uh, say on it. It was great, though, because I'm sitting here and I'm thinking I have not heard anyone yet in the what have we been doing this for like 13, 14 months? Say it like that. And I'm like a faithful Catholic woman who goes to mass every Sunday with my kids and tries to make it to daily mass a couple times a week and has a regular holy hour. And I'm truly sitting here thinking, huh, it's a task. It's not just this thing that I receive. It's not just a title that I get. It's a task. And am I actually, like, I'm kind of called out by this in, in this moment. Like, am I actually doing that? Or am I just going going through the motions, receiving the Eucharist, making sure my kids don't cause too much of a ruckus while we're sitting there. Just this morning, as I dropped my daughter off at school, daily mass was getting out at our parish and where the drop-off line is, you have to drive right past the front door. And the lady we sit behind every Sunday, Miss Maxine, is coming out and Rose rolls the window down and says hi to Miss Maxine. And then she goes, Miss Maxine, why are you at church? It's not church day. And sweet Miss Maxine looks at her and goes, every day is church day, baby, and hops in her car and off she drives. And I'm sitting there thinking, you know what? It could be. And why is she sitting there? Is it a task for her? I'm going to believe that it is. She wouldn't be there otherwise. I know her in our community. I see what she does. Why is this not articulated very often, Tim? Because like this is, I'm truly sitting here. We've had many conversations. I've read your books and I'm challenged by what you just said. Why isn't this often talked about? Yeah, I mean, I think we still haven't read or taken up or appropriated what Vatican II said about us. Mm. Uh, I think especially amongst the lay faithful, right? We, for years, have been trying, like, no matter what Pope we're talking about has been articulating this, that, that the Mass, right, is that the Eucharist is a, a great act of remembrance. It's a great act of communion. It's certainly real presence. It's that which brings us into deeper love of one another. It was certainly in, in St. John Paul II, who described, you know, in his work on the laity, that, that it's Eucharistic through and through. We're meant to consecrate the world back to God. Benedict said that there's nothing in the Eucharist that does not find its fulfillment. Every thought and affection, every desire of the human heart is lifted up and brings us to make of our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, offered back to God. Pope Francis has continued to articulate the sort of relationship here. I just think we're slow learners. And (laughs) I think it's easier, to be honest, to say that the major problem is that people don't understand X, Y, or Z. And if we can teach them X, Y, or Z, then everything will be better. And I think that certainly that's partially true, but teaching them X, Y, or Z is only the beginning of actually shaping your life according to X, Y, or Z, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we, we can all sort of proclaim that Christ, you know, loves those on the margins, but you actually have to love those on the margins, therefore, right? It's not enough to make pretty words about it. And so I think that's the task. I don't think we've gotten that. I think we still, uh, there's something about American religiosity in particular, where it's a very sort of consumer moment. It's me, what do I get out of it? And we don't think, well, I should have to mask because I have to, because it's my job, right? I am to offer the sacrifice of my life back to the Father through the Son and the unity of the Spirit. That's my that's my task. I'm there even when I don't want to be. And in receiving the Lord, I then go forth to, to become that in particular kind of situations. And that's what Lent really is, by the way. It's not some sort of self 
hatred program <laughs> or some chance to work. It, it's, do you actually live this life? Do you do this? Do you spend time with the beloved so that you might become like the beloved? So I think that's the task. I, I just think it's hard. So, mm-hmm. and renewal is always hard. That's the other thing about history, I should say, is because everything has always been bad, we have to understand to ask everyone to do this thing that we're asking people to do, we should recognize how hard the thing is that we're asking people to do. Mm-hmm. And that's where there's sort of mercy in, be- in actually shaping your life according to this, because it's really hard, right? Mm-hmm. The rich young man in the Gospel of Luke, right, was told by Christ to do one very specific thing. And then he went away sad because, as the Gospel says, he had very many things. He was very rich. That was hard, right? And our, our Lord follows that by saying it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God, right? Well, then how is this possible, right? And of course, the answer is nothing is impossible with God. In other words, stop trying to do it yourself mm-hmm. and start giving yourself over to this, but also realize that what we're doing is super hard. You know, it's total union with Christ. It's not like giving up chocolate for right. a little bit. Right. So my next it's question hard. shouldn't be, okay, so great idea. I really am on board with it, but how? And I mean, I guess that's a lifelong project, but if there's somebody listening to it thinking, I've never heard it articulated this way before. I like this. I understand that this is what I'm called to. We're not just trying to make armies of theologians who can answer technical apologetical questions. We're trying to change people's complete understanding of what it means to receive and to become. How? Like that seems so daunting. The average American parish with one priest who barely has time, it seems, to make a good homily half the week. How do we make that some sort of a priority within the parishes, whether it's by leadership or or councils or just, you know, the average Catholic family saying, okay, this is a great project I'm going to undertake in my own life and in the lives of others. Like, what's the practical here? Yeah, I guess that's the practical. It's the practical is just do the things. So ironically, we simplify things, but we've overly complexified this. So how do you do it? Do the things, show up to mass, uh, pray, uh, you know, develop a life of prayer in the home, serve the hungry and thirsty, you know, study, do the basic things, right? You don't have to go get a master's degree in theology. You don't have to sign up for this or that course, right? Do the things, do them and pay attention to the voice of the spirit, what spirit calls you to do in the midst of doing this, right? What is the apostolic creativity to which one is called? in this particular situation, right? So rather than wait for the parish, for example, to organize something, right? If a family, for example, discovers the gift of the Eucharistic mystery and they want to be a witness to the gift of this love in their neighborhoods, start hanging out with people in your neighborhood to do this, (laughs) right? Like, don't wait for a formalized program to emerge from the Vatican that will tell you exactly how to do that. You know how to hang out with people, you know, like, Develop a richer life of prayer in your home. Um, These are the sort of basics, I think, that we pass beyond because we want to go, you know, we think this all is complex. But if my grandmother could have been a Catholic, you know, having not graduated from high school, then I think anyone can do it. It's not uh, PhDs in theology are no guarantee of anything (laughs) outside of hubris sometimes. So I think (laughs) the approach is like, do you do the things? Do you? Do the basics. Mm-hmm. And do you witness to those basics in public spaces? Are you attentive to discerning as a parish that you actually care about the hungry and thirsty in your midst? Do you know the forgotten, right? Do you live a life of solidarity? You know, it's 
It's the basic discernment of Christian life. It's nothing more. Mm -hmm. And then you do it. And it's not always going to work. Some of it will work. Some of it won't. If it works, it's of the spirit. If it's not, it might not have been of the spirit. And if it works right, you know, it might also not be of the spirit because I'm too uh, Augustinian to believe that we're capable of knowing that with 100%, but <laughs> it probably is. So I think that's it. Like, just do stuff, right? Yeah. Do stuff, witness, stop being a passive consumer of religiosity mm. and instead witness to the gift of love to the world. That's a great line. Because we do, that consumeristic attitude. I go to church to get something and then I leave. I, I put in my $5 this week. I'm sending my kids to the Catholic school. They'll get what they need there. Sometimes I feel like we don't believe that anything is on us. And then we yes. complain when the church isn't doing things as if we expect the church to just do it as if we're not a part of the church. I have this complaint sometimes when it comes to say NFP and it's like, well, you're telling me I have to practice it, but you're not giving me any resources. Well, am I not capable of going and finding those resources or learning myself and maybe creating those? And so I think the same thing is true when it comes to, well, if, if Jesus is there in the tabernacle, why can't I just go? Like, why do I have to wait for the, the church thing? I can just go to the church. Why do I have to wait for Father's homily to knock my socks off? Like, I can just read the scriptures before I get to Mass and be ready to hear them. All that is your vocation. That's what right. it means to be baptized. That's the, the seriousness by which the church transforms us into priests, prophets, and royal figures. And that's why we're called to do it. And, and you know, it doesn't have to be marvelous either. I mean, like, the patience that a parent expresses with their child, the sort of charity of a coworker to another coworker, all of these are acts of doing this, right? I, I think sometimes, you know, unless it's turned into a six-week program that's published, right, by a ma major publisher, sorry, uh, since we're on a publisher thing, um, <laughs> right, like, then it, it, it doesn't work. Like, no, that's, mm -hmm. that's not what's needed. Start now, right? Start with the basics. It's a great challenge. What are some of the ways y'all do this at McGrath? Like, I know you've got a ton of projects that really try to make this a reality to folks. And yes, we can start, we can do the things simply and in complex ways, but y'all are putting forth a lot of time, energy, and money to make some of this a reality in parishes. Tell us about that work. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people doing a lot of things. I would say that for this sort of Eucharistic dimension, we're doing two things in particular. So we have invited 20 Catholic leaders from around the United States to develop projects that were called Creating Eucharistic Culture. And so these are much more sort of interesting, sophisticated projects. Well, I, I use sophisticated. I meant it ironically because I said, like, just do simple things. But these aren't just simple things. You know, so we have someone working and studying with us on, on how to build a neighborhood that's more that promotes a Eucharistic culture in the neighborhood. Right. Like, how do you actually construct neighborhoods or think about urban planning in this way? We have someone who is working in prisons in the Diocese of Jackson, Mississippi, to form prisoners to serve as Eucharistic missionaries and uh, within oh. the sort of prison context. We have someone working on catechesis of the Good Shepherd, someone trying to bring together a Eucharistic formation for infertility. So in other words, we want to create these cultures that then can multiply and start doing this kind of work. The second thing is we wrote this book, Becoming Eucharistic People, and we are running it at parishes to sort of invite this occasion of self-reflection. The book is not a program. It doesn't say like, okay, here's how to run a program around X, Y, or Z. It's a two-year discernment process for a parish to take to be like, well, are we Eucharistic people? Mm -hmm. Do we, you know, 
are we reverent? Do we offer an integral formation, an integral Eucharistic formation through the lifetime of a Catholic? Do we treat religion as something private or public? And do we practice Eucharistic solidarity amongst each other and otherwise? And so the book's goal is to get that self-reflection. And, you know, so now we're leading events around it and traveling to do things around that particular book. So that's two of the ways we're doing it. There's many more at the Institute itself, but those Mm -hmm. are two. I think that's great. I I mean, I have not thought about the Eucharist in a prison context and in the the industrial complex that really is people isolated from the world and what can, what can transform their lives in there. Yeah, it's really hard because even the priest can't get in right away. So how do you develop a Eucharistic spirituality where there is no Eucharist, right? right? Because there's several months they just can't do anything at all. So I think that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Is, you know, that's the task. Yeah. I I know you're a dad, Tim. And I wonder sometimes like you're saying, let's keep things simple. And then also there's these incredible programs that are being developed in these projects, programs, maybe not the right word, but these, these thought patterns. But when you get home at the end of the day, you've got two kids, not all that different in age from my own kids. You're living a family life, how does this translate into your home spirituality, into your, into your marriage, into your fatherhood, to really recognize I'm talking about these things, I'm laying these things out, I'm encouraging these things, but then it's also reality in my own life. What does that look like? Yeah, I think probably the answer to the question was in the question itself, which is I just go home and I live this life. So I'm one person <laughs> or try to be one person. And you're not testing things I, out on your kids, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I just go and be a dad and I go to mass and I live this life in the home and, you know, we talk to one another, we learn patience, we learn to apologize to one another, to live the sort of rudiments of this sort of Eucharistic life in the home. I think that's it. There's nothing sort of remarkable about it. Again, there's no program that gets lived out. You know, we keep the feast days, we remember things that happen in the church's life, we do all these things. Our children are in extensive formation, but I think my life of prayer and grounding in the Eucharistic mystery is a good deal of it. It's just part of what we do. And so it's itself pretty basic. Mm -hmm. I wish it was actually more complex, but it is pretty (laughs) basic. And, you know, it's just normal sort of life. And I think as I get older, the the human task is to live an integrated life, right? So Mm -hmm. what I do in the classroom, what I do when I travel, what I do in the home, it should be of one thing. I'm only one person. Mm -hmm. And authenticity, sort of coherence uh, of identity requires me to just be that one thing in all those places instead Mm. of different people in every place. Right, right. I think you're doing it well, and I'm grateful. Well, I could have my children on and see what they think or (laughs) my spouse. So I think she would, she has some critiques. She's uh, actually the next episode. I didn't tell you that. I uh, I sent her a blind email just to see. Tim, That would be great. (laughs) We're ending. I mean, it's fine. I know what she'd say. That's the nice part of it all. Yeah, there, I had a um, a moment recently where Rose came with me to an event and she did not realize that these kids like actually cared to listen to me. Like she was like, they want to hear from you. It's like, yeah, people pay me to talk and you 99% of the time just walk away from me. So it can yeah. be a, a little bit jarring at times. Tim, we're asking everybody the same question at the end of our episodes this season. And it's if you had 60 seconds with someone and that someone can be whoever you want it to be. You just have to tell us who this person maybe is. Somebody that walked away from the church, somebody who's like full in, they love their Catholic faith, but they just maybe feel a little dry, a complete non-believer, an atheist, uh, a revert, whatever, whatever category it might be. You have 60 seconds with them to tell them something about the Eucharist. Then maybe we'll change their life. What is that thing that you share with them? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it would change their life, but I think in order to understand the Eucharist, you have to know the first thing first, which is that God is real. That God wanted to be in relationship with men and women. And the whole story of salvation is God's going out from God's perfect communion of love to love us. God didn't have to. God loved us first. Right, And in Christ, we see this love take flesh and form from the moment he was born to the moment that he died. He's ascended into heaven. There he is, right, at the right hand of the Father, our flesh and blood there in God's very life. And because of that, everything that Christ did is now available to us on that altar. He gives himself anew. He's closer to us than... He was even to the apostles in some sense in this. And so when we go to mass, there he is. God is there to change it. It's real. It's not fake. It's not mere religious performance. It's real. And this reality has led men and women throughout time, saints, to give up everything and follow this guy and to, to sort of give themselves over to this mystery of love. And so I think if you get all of that, then the Eucharist kind of becomes easy, right? Because there it is, it's given. The memory is the event given anew to us here and now. Say that last part one more time. The memory. The memory is the event, right? The memory itself is the event present to us here and now. So good. All of this and more in your books, right? Tell us where we can find them. I think Ave Maria would tell you that there's many that are there. And then, of course, you can use <laughs> giant technological giants like Amazon, which will <laughs> close small bookstores, but you depend on them. So we'll put everything down in the show notes, including your often very amusing and reflective Twitter. Tim O'Malley, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks, Katie. I think sometimes as church we worry about, am I just making projects of things? Am I just creating to-do lists for myself? But I love what Tim just shared with us, that the Eucharist is very much a task. Not just this thing I go get, not just this holy object, as Father Vosick said in our first episode, but is this person I encounter who tasks me with, who commands me to go be his hands and feet in the world, to love others in an entirely new way to create spaces of love, to where others can begin to experience and encounter Jesus Christ in this new way. I was very much convicted by what he said, too, of this idea that if your parish were to disappear tomorrow, would the community know it? Or has it become so insular and so boxed into itself that no one else would recognize that that church is gone, that that Eucharist has been taken, that those people are not gathering there anymore? I think that's a a real challenge and conviction to us, especially as we continue to explore who the Eucharist is and why the Eucharist is and what the Eucharist means for us in our journeys of faith. Everything we've created, our podcasts, these reflections on the saints, all of our old series, everything is available at AveMariaPress.com. You know, there are lots of, of glitzy programs out there and books out there and podcasts out there and they're all wonderful and good and we're very much living in a golden age of Catholic media and as someone who works in Catholic media I think I can definitively say it's great that there's so much out there but I do want you to know that we are so proud of our 20 plus seasons excuse me our 20 seasons and more to come of Ave Explorers and we're so grateful that you're part of this journey with us we'd be so grateful 
if you would go and write a review for our show so more folks can find it. That always helps amplify it in the algorithm. Follow the show, click the little plus sign wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode. We've got so much more coming. Incredible conversations still to come about Eucharist scatteration, about the Eucharist within family life, about the way the Eucharist can challenge us in moments where we feel great pain can be a source of healing in really truly what is the project of the Eucharistic revival and how the Eucharist is the anchor of everything we do within the life of the church. There's so much more to come. We hope that you journey with us. Sign up for the email so you don't miss anything and know that we're praying for you as we continue to explore the Eucharist together. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.